uh, have three lovely little daughters and a wonderful wife, and so Pastor Evan asked me to teach the men's breakout session. Everything masculine inside of me just exploded with joy. Uh, even tried to grow out a beard and, you know, got too hot for that. So my name's Jason, and I'm one of the pastors here. I get the privilege of serving our college ministry and single adults, and we're going to be getting in the book of Exodus this morning, continuing our series. You can go ahead and open there. To chapter 7, verse 14. I will give you a high five if you take good notes. <laughs> You'll see the, the title for this morning's message is The Purpose of the Plagues. The Purpose of the Plagues. We're going to be looking at all 10. We're going to spend some significant time on number 10 in the coming weeks, but this morning's just kind of a flyby overview. And we're going to start in Exodus chapter 7, verse 14. That's where the first plague begins. And our, our key text this morning is actually found in Exodus 9, 14. And it's written in your notes there. So I'm, I'm just going to read that for us. And then we'll pray. And then we'll get going. Exodus 9, 14. This is the Lord speaking to Pharaoh. For this time, I will send my plagues on you yourself and upon your people, so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this morning, the privilege we have to worship you, to gather as your people. Thank you for your word. Spirit, I pray you would draw our hearts to Jesus this morning. Lord, you would draw us to truth Lord, you would help us to see you clearly. Lord, you would affect in our hearts, Holy Spirit, by your power, what you want to accomplish in us. Lord, we would walk away from this morning more aware of you and your activity in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, guys, we're jumping in right in. Just want to give us the main point right off the bat, the big idea this morning. It's in your notes. It says this, God's purpose in the plagues is to reveal himself as supreme over all opposition. God's purpose in the plagues is to reveal himself as supreme over all opposition. The opposition in the world of Egypt, and we're going to see the opposition in our own lives, in our own world as well. I think it's going to hit close to home for us this morning. But you can see that God in the plagues is the sovereign ruler over all creation. No opposition can usurp that authority. He alone is God. And there is no other. And his agenda that we see throughout scripture is that he is seeking to glorify himself by rescuing his people to dwell with them forever. That's what he's up to in Exodus. That's what he's up to throughout all of scripture. And we see throughout scripture opposition, various forms of opposition seeking to derail that agenda, don't we? The serpent lied. Mankind fell. Cain killed Abel. The world grew wicked. Babel was built. Abraham fathered Ishmael. Joseph sold into slavery. Israel enslaved to Egypt. Hebrew boys fed to crocodiles. Pharaoh refusing to let God's people go. Opposition almost at every turn. But we see in those stories that that opposition 
ultimately fails to oppose God. God reigns supreme over that. We're going to see that in the plagues as well this morning. And and what we're also going to see in these plagues is that while they represent God's sovereign judgment over opposition, they also show us the merciful heart of God to warn us of his coming judgment. And to even rescue us from that judgment should we turn to him and withhold it from our lives. And I love this, that the plagues also tell us this, that God is actively, actively involved with the proceedings of this world. Right? He, he's not lying in the grave, oblivious to the happenings of humanity. He's not in the, in the halls of history, biting the dust, just wondering why his ideas are now irrelevant, as if they've exceeded his expiration date or something. Right? Nor, is God, nor is God some like father who's just slumped on the couch while his children run crazy and wild throughout the world. He's just flipping through the stations on the TV or scrolling through the news feed on his phone. He is actively involved with this world. He's wholeheartedly averse to the concept of creation disregarding its creator. And no matter how much we love it, he's never going to sign off on the idea that life can just be our own reality TV show where we get to determine its boundaries and rules and how it's run. What we see in these places is that this really is God's world. And he really reigns supreme in it. And, and the sooner we get okay with that idea, the better. The sooner we adjust, the better, because any opposition that seeks to stand against God will soon come under his judgment. He will reveal himself as supreme. He doesn't share his glory with anybody There are no other gods but him. And in the plagues, we're going to see that God's supreme over two forms of opposition, right? Two forms of opposition. First, he's he's supreme over the false gods of Egypt, and he's supreme over the idolatrous hearts of people. The false gods of Egypt and the idolatrous hearts of people. We're going to see that in the plagues. And I'm going to go through, go through these plagues quickly because uh, we want to get to the end. I believe God wants us to respond. I believe he wants to do some ministry in our hearts. And so we're going to look at how he's supreme over these false gods of Egypt because we must understand this church. As you see these plagues, guys, and, and we can often miss this, especially if we're tuned in to the movies about the Exodus. When you see these plagues, what we must understand that there's something bigger going on than just like Moses and Aaron versus Pharaoh. There's something bigger going on. It's primarily, this is a showdown about God's supreme power prevailing over the false gods of Egypt. Exodus 12, 12, God says of these plagues, he was executing judgments against all the gods of Egypt. So these, these plagues aren't like some variety pack God picks up at the local heaven quick stop. These are, these are deliberately designed to attack every area of Egyptian life where they sought protection from false gods. Here's how James Boyce explains the religious significance of these plagues. In your notes, there's a quote. It says, in order to understand these plagues, we need to understand that they were directed against the gods and goddesses of Egypt and were intended to show the superiority of the God of Israel to the, God, to the Egyptian gods. There were about 80 major deities in Egypt, all clustered about the three great forces of Egyptian natural life the Nile River, the land, and the sky. It does not surprise us, therefore, that the plagues God sent against Egypt in this historical battle follow this three-force pattern. The first two plagues were against the gods of the Nile. The next four were against the land gods. The final four plagues were against the gods of the sky, culminating in the death 
of the firstborn. So God takes on the gods of Egypt to demonstrate that he is superior, far superior to these gods. And there is none other more superior than he himself. And here's how we see this play out in the plagues. Okay, so here we go. Plague number one, the Nile. Remember from last week, Pharaoh's heart is still unyielding to God's demand to let his people go. He refuses to let Israel go. So God gives Moses and Aaron instructions to turn the Nile River into blood. Scripture says this, it's in your notes. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile. And all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. As the first plague, turning the Nile into, ri- into a, a, a river of blood is, is totally appropriate. For in doing so, God is striking the very heart of Egypt's existence. The Nile was the lifeblood of Egypt. Essentially, there is no Egypt without the Nile. In fact, you can find quotes from Greek historians who say things like this. All know that Egypt is the Nile and the Nile is Egypt. One commentator said the Nile was responsible for transportation, irrigation, drinking water, food, and the setting of the calendar. Cutting it off would be similar in our day to cutting off all oil supplies, the stock market collapsing, drinking water being contaminated, and having no food in the grocery stores. It'd be total chaos, right? So it should come as no surprise the Egyptians worshipped the Nile as its source of life. And the god that was associated with the Nile, his name was Hopi, and he was worshipped because he was the god of the annual flood of the Nile, which gave birth to Egypt and nourished its strength. He, he was seen as the sustainer of Egypt. Without the Nile, without that annual flood, Egypt just would have been a desert. So God humiliates Hopi by turning the life-giving Nile into a death-flowing river of blood. And thus the Nile was no longer able to sustain Egyptian life. The river of life became the river of death. And Hopi was humiliated. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile and Moses returns to Pharaoh. Pharaoh again, and we're just going to see this over and over, refuses to let God's people go. Refuses to bow to God. So God plays Egypt with frogs. Now, you know, frogs aren't very dangerous, but frogs everywhere, I mean, nobody wants that, right? These things were everywhere, all over Egypt. So what's God doing here? Again, James Boyce helps us understand what's going on here. He says, if we are to understand the full significance of this plague, we must recognize that the goddess of Egypt was involved in the judgment. The goddess Heket, who was always pictured with the head, and often the head and body, of a frog. Since the cat was embodied in the frog, the frog was sacred in Egypt. It could not be killed. And consequently, there was nothing Egypt could do about this horrible and ironic proliferation of the goddess. There's no frog gigging allowed, right? They were forced to loathe the very symbols of their depraved worship. And when the frogs died, their stinking bodies must have turned the town and countryside into a stinking horror. The Egyptians depended on Heket to control the frog population. So with Egypt overrun with frogs, Heket is absolutely humiliated. And Egypt also depended on this goddess, Heket, to assist women in childbirth. They believed that she was the spirit that helped uh, breathe life into the child when the child was born and helped through the, the labor pains. 
So commenting on this plague, uh, Philip Ryken says, and he connects it to the first plague, this suggests that there may be a connection. Look how God just, he works. Everything's intentional. There may be a connection between the second plague and Pharaoh's sin against the Egyptian midwives, if you remember that. Remember that the book of Exodus began with attempted infanticide. In his effort to exterminate the Israelites, Pharaoh commanded the Hebrew midwives to kill Israel's baby boys. When this evil plan failed, he ordered the infants to be thrown into the Nile. Given that background, it seems significant that God's first two plagues struck blows against the gods of Egypt's river and the goddess of Egypt's midwives. It was a matter of strict justice. God was punishing the Egyptians for their sins. The very river that Pharaoh used as an instrument of genocide was turned to blood, and the first goddess to be humiliated was the one who governed labor and delivery. There was a connection between Pharaoh's crime and God's punishment. Nevertheless, Pharaoh continues to refuse. He he did promise, hey, Moses, as soon as you get these frogs out of here, I'll let Israel go. And the frogs leave, there's relief, and Pharaoh changes his mind. And so the next plague comes, and it comes unannounced, and then there are gnats. And these are gnats everywhere. And these are gnats, they're touching everyone, and they're touching everything, and they're, they're swarming everywhere. And by turning the dust into bugs, God was claiming supremacy over the very soil of the ground uh, that Egypt depended on to live and grow their crops. And this, this was humiliation for the earth god that Egypt worshiped called Geb. And this is also the first plague that the magicians from Egypt could not replicate on their own. And that they, they made the comment to Pharaoh, um, hey, this is the finger of God here. They recognize there's a superior power at work here. Nevertheless, Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen. Once the Egyptians finally got comfortable with the gnats all over them, the flies came next. Can't help but notice God's sense of humor, right? You see that it's, it's the small things in life that bug us the most, isn't it? The scripture says that the hoses of Egyptians will be full of flies and even the ground where they are. And we don't know for sure what God is being humiliated here, but it's probably the God of the resurrection, Kefir, who is he actually depicted as a beetle. And some argue that these flies were beetles known as scarabs, and these scarabs were actually worshipped as sacred in Egypt. They're found on monuments in Egypt. So this is like the, the, the plague of the frogs. The Egyptians were again made to loathe the very thing that they worshipped. Pharaoh continues to harden his heart, and so God's demand and warning come again. Moses says, plague number five, if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horses and donkeys and camels, and on your cattle and sheep and goats. The Egyptians' livestock, the domesticated animals, they they depended on these for milk, for transportation, for food, and for clothing. They got sick and all died. Can you imagine the scene? I mean, some of these are huge creatures. And the aroma of death must have just been absolutely unbearable. And could you imagine cleanup? That would have been absolutely exhausting. The Egyptians, they had all kinds of sacred cows that they worshipped. And many of their gods were depicted as livestock. That were, they were symbols of love and everlasting beauty. And so to now see all the livestock just dead, stacked up, is just absolutely humiliating to these gods no doubt portrayed something very different than beauty to the Egyptians. 
Well, Pharaoh remained a hardened skeptic after the livestock. He was given every opportunity to let God's people go, yet he deliberately refused to do so. And and such defiance actually brought about divine judgment on his life. Not only were his gods humiliated by God, but he also had his heart hardened by God as well. And his rebellion ushers in the very next plague. In Exodus 9, 8, we read, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh, and it will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt. And festering boils will break out on men and animals throughout the land. You kind of see things are like getting pretty personal now, aren't they? I mean, festering boils breaking out everywhere from head to toe on your body open sores the false gods the egyptians trusted in for healing could do nothing about it and were thus humiliated before yahweh now the seventh plague provides us with the probably the it's a record of the worst hailstorm in history right i mean y'all remember the hailstorm probably about two months ago here in New Orleans, and Judith Ann and the girls were out running some errands, and uh, they, were, they were loading back up in the car when the hail began to fall. It's kind of nickel size, and uh, they made it safely home, but you know, my, my kids remember that, man. They were scared. They're like, what in the world is falling out of the sky? They're young, so they hadn't seen this before, and, and my five-year-old still brings it up to this day when, when there are clouds in the sky or it's a rainy day. She's wondering, is the hail going to fall? Well, in Psalm 78, 47 through 48, we see the children of Israel do not forget God's hailstorm either. They say, he destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore figs with sleet. He gave over their cattle to the hail, their livestock to bolts of lightning. The Egyptian gods of the sky were absolutely powerless to provide shelter and refuge that the Egyptians needed in this hailstorm. And thus, They're humiliated. By the time God was finished, the land was totally decimated. Uh, All that remained were just these little seedlings of wheat, and that was just enough for the locusts to come in and chow down on, right? So the locusts come. Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. You know, some of the officials actually begin to confess and repent, but Pharaoh, nonetheless, he does not. He confesses to Moses that he sinned, but he does not confess to God. And therefore, he falls short of real repentance and change. And that's primarily seen in the action, that he continues to not let Israel go. And so the locusts come. God tells Pharaoh that the locusts will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. These little creatures can do some serious damage. John Davis writes, The locust is perhaps nature's most awesome example of the collective destructive power of a species. An adult locust weighs at a maximum two grams, and its combined destructive force can leave thousands of people with famine for years. This is definitely a plague. What's going on here with the locust? Well, well God's just hes doing what he's been doing. He's continuing to just humiliate the Egyptians' false gods. This time it's an assault on the gods who protected the wheat fields, right? The gods who provided bread for the Egyptians. And these gods failed miserably, taken down by little flying bugs with big red eyes. Just took them out. And Pharaoh still refused to let Israel go, and so the plagues continue. And nothing says judgment like these last two plagues, right? Darkness and death. 
In the ninth plague, we see God plunge Egypt into total darkness. Verse 21 says the darkness was felt by the Egyptians. And for three whole days, no one could see a thing. What do you think this did to sun worshipers? <laughs> it drove them mad. It drove them absolutely mad. As sun worshipers, darkness especially drove them mad. The supreme deity in their national pantheon was Amun-Ra. And he said this of himself. Listen to what he says of himself. I am the great God who came into being of himself. He who created his names. He who has no opponent among the gods. The Egyptians believed this solar deity was their creator. And as the sun god, they believed that he could never be destroyed. Pharaoh himself, men of this, he himself was a sun worshiper. But more than that, Pharaoh was even regarded as the son of Ra. And he was, he was the embodiment of the solar deity to the Egyptians. So he himself was worshipped. One commentator says, Egypt's god was Egypt's king. Thus the Egyptians, they, they worship Pharaoh and they worship Ra. So God's plague of three days of total darkness was utter humiliation to Ra and to Pharaoh himself. In darkening Egypt's world, God was demonstrating total and comprehensive to defeat to all these other gods. He was saving the biggest deity for last, Amun-Ra himself. And, and this deity was pretty easy to defeat for God. Like all he had to do was just kind of shut out the light. It was kind of like, let there be no light. And there was no light. It was decreation. Right, it's the opposite of Genesis 1. And something only the creator himself can do. Only the maker of the world can unmake the world that he has made. And that's exactly what he was doing there. Just proving, I'm the only God. Peter Enns writes of this, he says, Creation is at God's command, both to deliver his people and to destroy his enemies. The plagues are creation reversals. Animals harm rather than serve humanity. Light ceases and darkness takes over. Waters become a source of death rather than life. The climax of Genesis 1 is the creation of humans on the last day, whereas the climax of the plagues is the destruction of human beings in the last plague. The plagues do not run rampant, however. They eventually cease, and each cessation is another display of God's creative power. He once again restores order to chaos as he did in the beginning. The waters are restored. The pesky insects and animals retreat. Each plague is a reminder of the supreme power of God who holds chaos at bay, but who, if he chooses, will step aside and allow chaos to plague his enemies. So God proves his supremacy by blotting out the sun. Yet still, the heart of Pharaoh, the son of the sun god, remained dark. So the tenth plague came. The death of the firstborn. Remember, we're going to cover more on this, so I'm just going to give a brief synopsis. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, God said. The firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the slave girl, who sits at the handmill, who has her hand at the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt. 
worse than there ever has been or ever will be again. Now we know the Egyptians, they were obsessed with death and the afterlife. According to the Oxford Encyclopedia of Ancient Egypt, the Egyptians invested a larger portion of their wealth in the afterlife than in any other culture in the history of the world. And to just see this, you'd have to look no further than the great pyramids or the mummification process or the famous tombs of the pharaohs that we've seen. And the god of the dead was Osiris, and his assistant, his name was Anubis. You don't have to remember all these. I'm uh, just showing he, he was the god of the underworld. And when the firstborn of Egypt's sons died, and the firstborn of Israel's did not, God was proving he was the Lord of life and death. And there's nothing these false gods could do to stop him. That's what these plagues are primarily about. God revealing himself as supreme over all of Egypt's false gods. Each plague revealed the truth that he is superior. He holds absolute power, and there are no gods but him. That's what we see. But here's what we also see. We also see that God is supreme over the idolatrous hearts of people. One of the reasons Pharaoh and the Egyptians were so hard-hearted, y'all, is because they had totally given their hearts to other gods. <laughs> they were totally loving other gods. And so their hearts were hard. Their hearts were numb towards the one true God. And the average American is really not very different than the ancient Egyptian. You know, we, we still worship the same gods. We just, we just call them different names. What we count on, what we work for, what we play at, what we fear, what we dream about, what really comforts us, what gives us hope, what makes us feel valuable. These are the gods, friends, that we worship. C.S. Lewis writes, this isn't in your notes, he just says, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. That's what idolatry is, trying to find something other than God that will make us happy, loving something more than God, and it's in all of us. And so the plagues should serve as a warning not only those who refuse to believe in the gospel, but for those of us who have believed in the gospel, yet are tempted to love, serve, trust, and find happiness anything, in anything other than God himself. Tim Keller writes, he defines idolatry this way in your notes. He says, what is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. That's idolatry. I've heard one pastor say idolatry is taking a good thing and making it a God thing. So question, just, you know, what, what do you depend on to sustain you and your life? Like, what's your source of life? Right? For the Egyptians, it was denial. It sustained them. For us, I mean, I mean could it be like our 401K? Could it be having a, you know, a new president? Could it be that relationship? Could it be that job? 
What, what gives you life? Is it that vacation? When you think about personal security and comfort, you know, what, what do we depend on? Is it that investment? You know, what's your foundation in life? For the Egyptians, it was their soil. That's what they depended on. That's what they built their lives on. For us, it can be our possessions or our intelligence or our health, our personality. And I ask these questions because, guys, in the day of disaster, and that happens in this fallen world, in the day of calamity, none of these will be able to hold your world together. When, when mom and dad file for divorce, like, what are you going to fall back on? When you're diagnosed with illness, what holds you together? When relationships end, what helps you begin another day? When the unthinkable happens, what keeps you going? What are you building your life on? And when that thing crumbles away, what's going to keep your life from crumbling too? When you lose your job or you can barely pay the bills, what, what, what calms your anxious and worrying heart in that moment? And we could go through each of Egypt's false gods and we could see how we're, we're just not very different than they are, how our false gods correlate to theirs. Then the plagues, here's what God just wants us to see. Our hearts do Worship false gods. We, we have bad aim when it comes to worship. We miss the target by a long shot. God made us to worship him. Our hearts are directed at so many other things. G.K. Chesterton once said, When we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. Anything and everything is up for grabs when we cease to worship God. We can love anything and everything more than God. That's why Augustine called idolatry disordered love. And, and y'all, if we learn anything from the Egyptians, it's this. That when we love something more than God, we unleash chaos into our lives. It's really bad for us. We unleash chaos into our lives. I've, I've got a quote for you. It's not in your notes. I've got it on the screen. It's a little lengthy by Tim Keller. He's done a lot of helpful work in this category of idolatry. But he writes this in The Reason for God, just to show us how idolatry is, releases chaos into our lives. Says, if you center your life and identity on your spouse or partner, you will be emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling. The other person's problems will be overwhelming to you. If you center your life and identity on your family and children, you will try to live through your life, you will try to live your life through your children until they resent you or have no self of their own. At worst, you may abuse them when they displease you. If you center your life and identity on your work and career, you will be a driven workaholic and a boring, shallow person. At worst, you will lose family and friends and if your career goes poorly, develop deep depression. If you center your life and identity on money and possessions, you will be eaten up by worry or jealousy about money. You'll be willing to do unethical things that, to maintain your lifestyle, which will eventually blow up your life. 
If you center your life and identity on pleasure, gratification, and comfort, you will find yourself getting addicted to something. You will become chained to the escape strategies by which you avoid the hardness of life. If you center your life and identity on relationships and approval, you will be constantly overly hurt by criticism and thus always losing friends. You will fear confronting others and therefore will be a useless friend. If you center your life and identity on a noble cause, you will divide the world into good and bad and demonize your opponents. Ironically, you will be controlled by your enemies. Without them, you will have no purpose. If you center your life and identity on religion and morality, you will, if you're living up to your moral standards, be proud, self-righteous, and cruel. If you don't live up to your moral standards, your guilt will be utterly devastating. And when it comes to idolatry, the human heart can just be endlessly creative. As John Calvin said, the heart of man is a perpetual factory of idols. And as Tim Keller just helped us see, these idols are not good for us. They ruin us. They make us more miserable, more addicted, more depressed, more critical. They're just like the harsh taskmasters of the Egyptian gods. But listen, though they, they make our life miserable, that's not the worst part. That's not the worst part of our idolatrous hearts. The worst part, friends, is that our idolatry offends God. It offends God. There are, there are terrible things, man, that, that happen in the world today. You just look over this past week, my goodness, Planned Parenthood, my goodness. Terrible injustices, horrific injustices, but none so great as this, that the God of the universe is not worshipped as he should be, but he's replaced, he's substituted by lesser gods. Nothing as horrific as that. Nothing as much of injustice as that reality. The prophet Jeremiah describes this calamity even further for us. Chapter 2, verse 12 to 13, he says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water, forsaking God as the source of anything and everything we need in life is great evil, and it ought not be, and it won't satisfy, it's broken, it's dirty water, you're turning from the fountain of life. And God must respond to this. He's a holy God. He's a just God. And he's after his glory and his praise. And he, he can't just let this go. He can't sweep this under the rug. He must respond to our idolatrous hearts just as he had to respond to the false gods of Egypt. So what does he do? How does God respond? Two things, and I'll close. First, he judges. And second, he saves. He judges and he saves. And, and that's what these plagues tell us. In his righteousness, God judges idolatrous hearts. God judges idolatrous hearts. 
God deals with people according to their sins. Pharaoh was a wicked and cruel ruler. He deliberately tried to destroy God's people. He would stop at nothing. Murder, slavery, whatever it took. And the Egyptians willingly did what Pharaoh asked them to do. So they're, they're not innocent either. And so God judged Pharaoh in Egypt. He gave them what they deserved. It was a direct response to their sin against God and against their idolatry. And, and they, they deserved it. And what God wants us to see is so do we. So do we. When we give our affection to anything more than God, we deserve that. We deserve justice. God has, to, God has to respond with judgment towards that, or he would cease being a just God. And he can't do that. You know, we too make other things the center of our lives rather than God. That's what sin is called, and such evil will come under divine judgment. But the plagues also teach us that not only does God judge idolatrous hearts, but he shows mercy to idolatrous hearts as well. The plagues teach us that God does deal with people, not according to their sins, but saves us from the judgment that our sins rightly deserve. We see in the plagues that when people cry out to God for deliverance, he shows mercy. When people repent, he rescues the entire Exodus event was set in motion by the prayers of God's people, and eventually he leads them out of Egypt. And if you go back and you read through the story, you're going to notice that God makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel when he judges. The plagues discriminated. The Egyptians suffered while the Israelites were spared. The, Egyptian, the Israelites weren't far from the Egyptians. They're, they're all in the same area. Right? The Israelites are in a, a land called Goshen. The livestock in Goshen stayed alive. Right? They didn't have to report any hail damage. They didn't have to call the bug man or get some bug spray. They walked around. They enjoyed the daylight when it was dark for three days. And most importantly, their firstborn did not die. Israel was shown mercy. That, that's always what happens when God responds to sin. He judges and he saves. Mercy and judgment are kind of co-mingled. And you know where we see that most clearly? And most profoundly, most significantly? Is when God put forth his son on the cross. In doing so, God passed over our sins. He passed over our idolatry. And he punished Jesus in our place. The sinless one. The one who perfectly loved the Lord with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. The one who perfectly loved his neighbor as himself. He made a distinction between us and his own son. This is the love of God. Jesus Christ, the sinless one, was punished in place of us. He was crucified instead of us. He took God's wrath on behalf of us. Every one of us will be judged for our idolatrous hearts. Either Jesus took your judgment at the cross or something much worse than the plagues is coming for you. That's how God's responded. 
The question for us, how are we going to respond to that? The question for us who, you know, I mean, if you're human, like, we, have, we have idols in our lives. How are we going to respond to those? That's what's laid out before us. And worship team, you guys can come on back up. But, you know, I think in this story of the plagues and really throughout all Scripture, there are just two options. God gives us two options of how we can respond. We can either forsake God, right? Pretend, it just, pretend that that's not real. Pretend that our idols aren't really that bad. Downplay them. Forget them. Disregard God. And eventually we face judgment. Or we can forsake our idols and entrust our hearts fully to Christ and depend on his mercy alone to save us. Those are the only two options for us. It's either bow your knee to Jesus or face eternal judgment. It's, you can either know Christ as your Savior or you can fear Christ as your judge. And my question for us is just why in the world would we do anything different than the former? I mean, our idols are bad for us. They leave us miserable. They offend God. Why would we not daily entrust our hearts to Jesus? Listen to what we have in Jesus, guys. We have everything our hearts could ever want and long for in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true source of life. He created and he sustains life. Paul says in Colossians 1, 16 to 17, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He's the one who made you and he's the one who holds your life together. Jesus is the source of comfort. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, he says, come to me, all who are weary. Are you weary? Are you tired of being let down by these false gods again and again? Come to me, all who are weary and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you need, pre- do you need, do you need relief from the overwhelming pressures in your life? Has this fallen world and the harsh conditions in it cause much suffering? Do you need strength to face another day? I heard in prayer this morning, prayed, Lord, Lord we either are gonna be married to comfort or married to Christ. Jesus is here for you to provide that comfort. Jesus is the true source of sustenance. In John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Are are you running on empty, just spiritually drained? Turn to Jesus to fill you. He's the true source of joy. John 15, 11 says, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Friends, are you lacking joy? Right? Do, you, do you want joy? Not, not the kind of joy that's dependent upon circumstances in your life, but the kind of joy that whether things are good or whether things are bad, you have 
fullness of joy. That's what Jesus offers. Jesus is the true source of love. In 1 John 4, 7, the apostle writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Are you longing to be fully known and be fully accepted? Be totally cared for in ways greater than you could ever imagine. Welcomed, embraced, Turn to Jesus. Don't look to anyone or anything else for that. Jesus is the true source of protection. In John 10, 11 through 15, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Do you need refuge from evil or your spiritual attack? Need someone to protect you and uphold you and keep you from slipping or falling. We're just like a few steps away from doing something stupid every day. Do you need somebody to rescue you from that? Give you wisdom from above. Turn to Jesus. Jesus is the true source of contentment. Paul writes in Philippians 4:19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Are, are you looking to be satisfied? Right? Are you, are you tired of the energy it takes to battle discontentment? Are, are you weary from just looking to other things to fill you and satisfy you? Turn to Jesus. He alone satisfies. He alone has the capacity to fill our hearts. John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the source of true light. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Are you, are you tired of living in sin? Are, are you tired of those addictions? Tired of the five-step program that doesn't work. Grateful for it, but if it doesn't lead you to him, turn to him. He has the light that drives out all that darkness. Jesus is the true source of eternal hope. In John eleven twenty-five, 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Do you need hope beyond the grave? Something more than you could ever expect or imagine. Something that won't fail you, will never let you down. We need Jesus. We turn to him. Guys, listen. <laughs> Jesus does not make you pay if you fail him. Instead of destroying you and destroying me, he, he destroyed himself for you. Instead of demanding a sacrifice from you, he sacrificed himself for you. And if you have him, he will satisfy you. And if you fail him, he will forgive you. That's our God. He alone can satisfy. He alone can save. And he alone is all we need, church.
We need more and more of him in our lives. Eric and the, the team are gonna lead us in song. And while that happens, I was praying this morning before the sermon. Here, here's what I believe God wants us to do. I think he wants us to respond together as a church and to receive ministry from him. And as I was praying, just these, these thoughts came. Here's, here's what I think God wants us, who, who, I want, who he wants to respond. You know, most of us in this room have trusted Jesus to save us. And that's wonderful, and he has saved us. But we, we have idols in our heart that we just keep coming back to. And man, I mean, you think you're managing those, but they're actually managing you. We think we've got it on the end of the leash, but it has us on the end of its leash. And we keep coming back to him, and you just can't seem to get rid of it. I believe Jesus wants you to come, to come up as we sing and to pray and receive ministry from him. I believe he wants to give you more of him. If you're looking for, for pleasure and you've, you've found your pleasure in things that just let you down over and over, he, he, he has pleasure forevermore. And the only way to get rid of things that fail us is to have more of him in our lives. So I, I think he's inviting you to come and pray and have more of him. And he's here and he offers you himself and he wants to give you himself he wants to be the love of your life. He wants to be the object of your highest affections. It's what he made you for. That's why he exists. He wants you to come and magnify him this morning. I just invite you to come and respond to him as we sing. If you're in here and you're aware of idols that you just need to forsake and you need prayer, I invite you to come and respond to him. And you know, Maybe some of you have just been treating repentance a little too lightly. You know, like Pharaoh. Things are hard. I'm sorry, God, I'm sorry. Things let up. Uh, God who? Just back to the idols. Back to the lesser gods. I believe now's an opportunity. You can come and you can receive more of him. You can truly confess that to him. Truly repent from him. And, and he wants to deliver you. Friends, that's, he's not up here to judge. He's not here in this room to judge. The judgment has been paid in full. Your sins are wiped clean. He wants you to have joy. He wants you to know love that you're made for. He wants to deliver you from false gods. He wants to give you more of himself. That's what he wants when you come to him. So I invite you to come. Maybe there are some in here who just, like me at one point in life, just living life largely just unconcerned about God, unconcerned about his ways and his commands, doing your own thing in life. You've never really heard that there's judgment coming your way, and you've also never really heard that there's mercy available for you. And if you've never believed in Jesus or trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins so that judgment doesn't fall on you but falls on him instead in your place, today you can do that. You come forward. We'll pray for you. We've got some pastors down here. Our small group leaders can come up. We can pray for you. God wants to deliver you. God wants to save you. Our God's still working in hearts redemptively today to save and to deliver people, and to draw people to himself, and to dwell with them forever. 
So church, let's respond. Let's respond. And as we do, you will have nothing to lose if you forsake Jesus. And you'll have everything to gain when you come to him. Come. Come.